So again, lovely to be with you all here this evening. To see quite a few familiar faces from yesterday and from previously. And to hear that you're calling from all over Queensland, New South Wales, maybe some other states, some Victoria. And uh, as for me, I'm calling from Auckland, New Zealand, which has suddenly become my home base. So those of you who know a little bit of my life, I've technically been homeless for the last eight years since leaving IMS in the U.S. I've just been traveling around the world and going wherever I'm invited to teach. And I say technically homeless because actually the term I prefer is home full because wherever I go, I get to meet with Dharma people and connect with lovely friends and there are some familiar places that I visit often so home full rather than homeless but now there's change and suddenly Auckland has become my home base after this period of eight years of wandering so I got back here about a couple of months ago after being kind of stranded in Birmingham England for two and a half months I'd been teaching what was supposed to have been a one-month retreat in the Netherlands in March, which was right when the COVID-19 situation was developing. So we had to end that retreat a week early, and it was a scramble just to get back from the Netherlands to England. And then even more of a mission to get back to New Zealand. It took me four attempts before I finally made it. So I mention all that just as a snapshot by way of introduction about how much resilience is required these days because um, I think heightened for all of us by the effect of the pandemic and all the other repercussions that that has, um, seems to have catalyzed. So I'm sure each one of you has your own snapshot of how your life may have changed in the last few months perhaps dramatically. And even though each of those stories will be unique, I'm guessing there are universal themes that I'd like to touch on tonight, which I hope will be relevant for all of you, no matter what kind of challenges you might be dealing with now. So that's partly why I decided to frame this talk around the theme of resilience. You know, in modern psychological terms, it's defined as our capacity to maintain some degree of calm under pressure and to move on from a crisis without long-lasting consequences. But in terms of Dharma, we can go further than that psychological definition. And even to say that the challenges of the pandemic can catalyze inner resources to not only survive, but actually to thrive to come out the other side of these challenges in better shape than we were before, with more understanding, more wisdom, more compassion, more, compa more capacity to care for ourselves and for others. So what I'm trying to highlight here is even though by their nature our life's challenges are, well, they're challenging, if we can approach them in the right way, they give us the opportunity 
to develop these skillful qualities of heart and mind. Skillful qualities that, yeah, for most of us, don't so easily get strengthened when life is going well and we're just cruising along. <clears throat> I know for myself, when things are going well, it's easy to think, well, you've got plenty of time. We might have a sense that regular meditation is a good idea, but there's always something that's just a bit more important. And then suddenly there's some kind of crisis, and our usual default ways of doing things don't work so well anymore. The flaws in that habitual approach to life get revealed, and we might suddenly have a feeling of groundlessness. We don't have that firm foundation that we thought we had to rely on anymore. And often challenges push us into reorienting ourselves to what's truly important. And it can be humbling to see ourselves go through that cycle, perhaps several times in our life. But even the Buddha, before he became a Buddha, before he attained complete liberation, even he needed a wake-up call to shake him out of his complacency. So as some of you know, I've been uh, teaching, just finished teaching a six-week course on the heavenly messengers. And as many of you know, the legend of the Buddha's life describes how when he was a young man, he lived a life of complete luxury and hedonism. But when he got into his late 20s, he started to get tired of all that self-indulgence. And so the story goes, he snuck out of the palace at night to see what was going on in the nearby town. And over a sequence of meetings, he encountered a very old person, a very sick person, and a corpse. And supposedly, he with a shock, suddenly realized that he himself was subject to those same processes of aging and illness and death. And no amount of physical, material, financial comfort could prevent him from having those same experiences. But then on his last visit into town, he met a contemplative, a spiritual practitioner, a seeker, and apparently that faith, that person's serene face and calm demeanor inspired the Buddha-to-be to renounce his life of luxury. He left the palace and he set out on a spiritual quest that eventually solved his existential crisis because after about seven years of intense practice, he attained Nibbana, complete freedom of heart and mind. So in Buddhist tradition, these four characters, the old person, the sick person, the corpse and the contemplative, are known as the four heavenly messengers because they shook the Buddha to be out of his complacency, took him out of his comfort zone, woke him up and ultimately inspired him to develop a more meaningful orientation to life, one that led not only to his own freedom, but since then has helped millions of people follow that same path to profound ease, happiness and peace, which is what many of us here are following. 
So in my own experience over the last few months, when I look back to when the pandemic first hit, I had that sense of probably like some of you, shock, groundlessness, confusion, disorientation. But at the same time, there was a kind of exhilaration or an aliveness or a quickening with the recognition, this is why we practice. This is why we spend these hours, days, months meditating, going on retreats, studying the Dharma, learning about the Buddha's teachings, so that when these kind of challenges show up, we have some capacity to navigate them with some degree of ease. Now that doesn't mean it's easy, but we do, we're fortunate, I think, all of us here, to have a whole array of teachings that we can turn to or return to to help us deal with shock and find our way back to balance more quickly, which is another definition of resilience. So as I was returning to the Buddha's teachings and looking for what could strengthen this quality of resilience, what I found is the core teachings on the four Brahma-Vihara qualities have felt more essential than ever. And I think most of you probably know these four Brahma-Viharas are very skillful states of heart-mind, metta or kindness, karuna or compassion, mudita or appreciative joy, and upekka or equanimity. Now, in the course of a fairly short talk tonight, I'm not going to try and cover all of them, but I would like to just uh, give a kind of a framework of how they work together to condition the heart-mind so that it becomes supple, flexible, resilient. Sometimes I use the analogy of it's like hair conditioner working on the hair. So apologies to those of you who don't use hair conditioner may not need it, but you get the image that hair conditioner untangles, smooths out the knots, softens and strengthens the hair. So these four Brahmaviharas are powerful conditioners and help support that resilience. So I'll give a little more information about them, but first just to say what this term Brahmavihara actually means. It's sometimes translated as the divine abodes, the sublime abidings, the heavenly realms, sometimes the boundless state. And I don't know about for you, but to me, all of those sound slightly awkward in English because that term is hard to translate. The, the Brahma part refers to a kind of god that was worshipped by the Brahmin tradition in India at the time of the Buddha. And we don't really have any equivalent of that in our own culture. So it's sometimes translated as heavenly or sublime. But I'd like to put more emphasis on the vihara part of this because vihara means dwelling place. So Brahma vihara on one level literally means the dwelling place of or with Brahma. And this sense of dwelling or abiding to me is significant. Because it implies that these aspects of the Brahmaviharas are actually our home. And in the Buddha's understanding, 
when our hearts and minds are not assailed by stress, distress, difficulty, this is where our hearts naturally abide or dwell in kindness, compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity. And just like with our physical homes, when we're at home, when in that dwelling place of the Brahma-Viharas, there's a sense of ease, a profound ease. It's where we can feel more relaxed and comfortable in who we truly are. So the Brahma-Viharas have a very powerful role in supporting this quality of resilience. And as I think, has anybody never heard of these four Brahma-Viharas? just want to check how much detail do I need to go into. No, everyone's probably heard at least about the first one, metta, which is kindness or friendliness or goodwill. And I would like to keep reminding us that there are four because often metta gets the most airtime and we don't hear so much about the other three. But in my own practice experience, this is really unfortunate because we need all four of these Brahma-Viharas to be equally well-developed to get the most benefit, the most steadiness and the most resilience. So to use an analogy, just like a four-strand or four-ply piece of rope has a lot more strength than a single strand, if we work all four Brahma-Viharas together, there's a lot more strength than when there's just metta. And there's one other downside of putting so much emphasis on metta is that sometimes people develop the mistaken idea that metta is supposed to be our default response to everything. But depending on what's going on in our lives, sometimes metta is not actually the most appropriate response. And compassion might be more necessary or equanimity. I'll say a little bit more about that later. But the way that these Brahma-Viharas work, they work in two particular ways. And one is they prevent, they make the heart and mind resilient so it's harder for the afflictive states to get their hooks into us. Afflictive states such as anger or fear or boredom, jealousy, loneliness, despair and so on. So metaphorically, the Brahma-Viharas are like vitamin C for our immune system. They build up that strength and the afflictive things can't get their claws into us. And even though you may not have framed it in that way, I'm guessing that most of you have had a, an experience like that. You know, if you think of a time when you were in a good mood, little things that otherwise might have irritated you or got you down just feel like they bounce off or wash right through. And if we were to look more closely at that good mood you might recognize that one or more of the Brahma-Viharas was actually present, perhaps appreciative joy or equanimity. And we were um, re receiving the protective power of that quality, whether we recognized it at the time or not. The opposite is also true. So again, I'm guessing most of you have had that experience when we wake up in a bad mood or as we say in English, we get out of bed on the wrong side. 
the underlying negative mind states tend to amplify any everything and we get more caught in painful emotions. Again, I'm assuming you've all had that experience. But even there, when we recognize what's going on, the Brahmaviharas can act as antidotes to those afflictive states. So each of them has a particular quality that they work to um, release. So metta or goodwill is the antidote to ill will or aversion. Compassion is the antidote to all forms of suffering, emotional or physical. Appreciative joy is the antidote to envy or jealousy. And equanimity is the antidote to all forms of reactivity, imbalance and bias. So some teachers present these four as different flavors of love. And they start with this training in metta. Metta is the foundation in this tradition. And metta is a kind of almost generic goodwill, just a, a generalized warmth, kindness, and so on. When this metta turns towards pain or suffering, it becomes compassion or karuna. So that's one difference between compassion and metta. Metta is more generalized, but compassion focuses particularly on pain and suffering with the same kindness. Then on the other side of the scale, when metta turns towards what's going well, turns towards happiness, it becomes appreciative joy or mudita. Then when compassion and joy are perfectly balanced, equanimity can arise. The heart-mind completely in balance, at ease, at peace, free from any wanting, any not wanting. So one way I like to think of how these four are arranged and work together is if you think of a diamond shape. So I'll just try and show you that on the screen that's kind of a diamond at the bottom point where my two thumbs are touching that's where metta is located because it is the foundation and then as i was saying earlier when metta moves towards pain it flowers as compassion so compassion is on one of the side points of the diamond and then on the other side point of the diamond is mudita or appreciative joy and then when mudita and appreciative joy and compassion come together at the top of the diamond, we have equanimity. So one reason I like this image of the diamond is that if you think of an actual diamond, when a di because a diamond is perfectly clear, it naturally responds to light and refracts all these different colors, red or blue or yellow, because of its purity. So in a similar way, metaphorically, when the heart-mind is clear, it naturally responds to situations with kindness or compassion, appreciative joy or equanimity. It's just a, almost an automatic response. And it's becoming from the diamond or the heart's purity. So we can use these different flavors of love to our advantage to help us keep coming back to balance. And to do this, we're developing a kind of emotional literacy. 
so or resilience so for example if we have been working a meta practice for a while and at times it might start to feel a bit dry or superficial so then we might change to compassion practice to give it a bit more weight or a bit more gravity tuning into life's difficulties and challenges with this attitude of care on the other hand especially when there's a lot going on in the world we might start to feel bogged down in all of that suffering and then we might realize in terms of resilience what's required is actually to spend some time with appreciative joy to see what is going well in the world at times though that can become a little fizzy or giddy or ungrounded and so we might need to remember the truth that everything changes and deliberately come back to cultivating equanimity the balance the peace the ease the wisdom of non-reactivity so unfortunately i don't have to in enough time to go into all of these in more detail tonight but just to say a little bit more about metta as i think you all know the traditional way um it's been taught at least in the insight tradition is through reciting phrases of well wishing to different categories of people for example may you be safe may you be healthy may you be happy may you be at ease and i'm guessing all of you have had some experience of that style of practice but for some people that's not so easy they find the words can get in the way quickly become dry or mechanical or they might not feel authentic and sometimes people get caught in trying to manufacture a, a response that's not actually authentic or genuine and if that doesn't work then it's easy to fall into afflictive states such as self-judgment irritation frustration ill will the absolute opposite of the states that metta is intended to develop and i know this was true in my own practice and i've also heard many students describing similar and sometimes people end up deciding that metta practice doesn't work or they can't do it or there's something wrong with them and they just give up so i wanted to offer a slightly different approach tonight that might make it more accessible easier to practice in daily life because really that's the point all of these lovely words and phrases and perhaps at times feelings cultivated on the cushion are not that much good if they aren't available to us in daily life when we're facing the inevitable frustrations and challenges so just to emphasize that meta practice is not about trying to manufacture some kind of emotional response as we were exploring yesterday it's more about tuning in to what's actually already there and it may be very very faint and far off and seemingly distant but the more we learn to attune to or tune in to that natural quality of the heart the more the signal can become amplified and become more available to us sadly though many people's life circumstances have damaged this natural capacity 
to experience and express kindness. So in the beginning, one way in is to train ourselves to notice the kindness that's actually around us a lot of the time, but often unnoticed. And in some ways, I think that's been one of the advantages of the COVID situation that there have been quite, has been quite an outpouring of kindness. You know, we've seen people wanting to help, to support, to take care of their neighbors and elders and vulnerable community members. And probably many of you have been doing that in the context of your own families and communities too. But often we take this kind of kindness for granted. So in terms of cultivating resilience, the first stage is, in terms of metta practice is to train in and acknowledging these seemingly ordinary, everyday aspects of kindness. And doing this can help reset or diminish the mind's inherent negativity bias. So as I think you know, there is a way that our brains are more hardwired to see what's challenging and threatening than to let in this kindness and generosity, to let in what's going well. So next time you're driving somewhere and maybe somebody lets you in in traffic, just take a moment to let that register. Or if the person on the checkout smiles with some genuine feeling when they when you're buying your groceries, let that in. If a colleague brings cake for morning tea, just notice, let that in. Just so many tiny examples that are probably happening all through your own lives too. And later, hopefully we'll hear about a little bit about that. There's one piece of this that's uh, just as important, but often quite difficult for people, and that's to let in and acknowledge our own kindness. And many of us have conditioning around being unworthy or inadequate or perhaps feeling fear of being conceited. But the Buddha was actually very clear about the need to simply acknowledge our own good qualities so they become a resource that strengthens this quality of resilience, strengthens our capacity to deepen wisdom and compassion. So if we come back to the focus on metta, if you're tuning in through the day as often as you remember all the times that you either offer or receive kindness, then when you sit down to cultivate metta in formal practice, it's probably going to be a little easier because you're already tuned in to a kind of metta field. And all you have to do is begin by remembering those real-life acts of kindness and see if that feeling of metta starts to well up, not so much as a phrase, but as an actual embodied experience. And this embodied aspect of metta is important because it acts as a positive feedback loop. But when we are able to open to the feeling of metta, Most people experience it as subtly pleasant in the body, the heart, the mind. And that subtle pleasantness supports concentration, samadhi, the steadying and gathering of the mind. And when the mind is steady and stable, it's easier to see clearly 
to deepen insight, which helps let go of the afflictive states that get in the way of happiness. And then it becomes easier to experience the deep calm and ease and peace that all of these teachings are pointing to. So we can use metta as a very powerful impetus to kick-start that whole chain reaction. So just to get a little flavor of that, let's, let's try it now. I'd like to offer just a few minutes to experiment with in the silence, bringing to mind a time fairly recently when you did experience some kind of kindness or metta. Just as you're sitting here now, see if you can find a moment when either someone was kind to you or you were kind to someone else. It doesn't have to be anything huge. Just a small, maybe fleeting moment of human warmth, kindness or care. And as you remember that experience of metta, see if you can recreate that memory clearly. And as you do, just tune into the body. And notice any effect on your body as you relive that experience of metta. Perhaps as a slight trace of a smile on your face. The eyes soften. Perhaps the shoulders relax just a little. Maybe the breath's getting a bit deeper. Perhaps there's a feeling of warmth around the heart center, the chest. Or maybe an overall sense of lightness, spaciousness, energy. without forcing any way, just seeing if that embodied energy of metta might begin to expand through the whole body. That warmth and kindness, openness and ease, naturally pervading 
every cell of your body. Soaking in this energy of warmth and kindness. Until it naturally begins to expand. To extend now to include somebody that you care about. That you're close to. That you'd like to share this metta energy with. Bringing that person to mind now. Receiving them into your force field of kindness and care. Warmth. Metta. And as they take in your kindness, you might see them too becoming more relaxed, more at ease, more open. Their eyes soften. Their face smiles. And now they're looking back at you with the same energy of warmth, care, and kindness. Now you are receiving metta from your good friend. Staying steady, staying open, sitting together now in this force field, this reciprocal flow of warmth, kindness and care. So thank you for being willing to just touch in to a few moments of exploring metta with me. It's possible that some of you might have found that difficult. So I just want to emphasize that this is a practice. It is a training. So as I mentioned earlier, all of us just from the fact of being human beings will at times have experienced painful things that perhaps block our access 
So if we sit down to practice metta and we find ourselves lost in irritation or frustration or numbness and so on, that doesn't mean that we've done something wrong. It actually is the practice working. So it's designed to show us what gets in the way of metta so that we can do something about it. So if we do find ourselves experiencing ill will and aversion and so on, there is an opportunity to cultivate kindness for the non-kindness. So sometimes people mistakenly think that metta practice is about covering over or denying parts of ourselves that we don't like or are afraid of. But actually it's about bringing them more fully into our awareness so that we can meet them with kindness rather than judgment or fear. So a few years ago I heard the English monk Ajahn Suchito talking about orphans of consciousness. Orphans of consciousness. And that phrase really struck me. And what I thought he meant by that, or my understanding was that he was referring to those parts of our being that we'd rather ignore and avoid. And back then when I heard that phrase, I suddenly thought, wow, I have been running an orphanage all these years. And it was a kind of another wake-up call or an invitation to try to get to know those orphans instead of rejecting them. And these days, they seem to be a lot happier. So, just to highlight that it can take a surprising amount of courage to practice metta. And that's the last aspect I want to highlight now. Sometimes people feel fear that practicing metta is going to make them weak and that people will take advantage of them. But all of these Brahma-Viharas are supported by wisdom and it's this wisdom that prevents us from falling into foolish kindness. In the Buddha's teachings, we need to include ourselves equally with others. So for practicing metta in a way that's harmful to ourselves, then it's not true metta. Wisdom invites us to keep checking if what we're doing is beneficial to ourselves as well as others. And if it's not, then we need to change the way we're doing the practice. So there's a lot more that could be said about any of this, but I really wanted to leave time to hear from any of you how you might have been practicing with metta in your own lives how it might be helping you to navigate challenges, and any other ways you may have of cultivating this resilience that helps us navigate the inevitable ups and downs. So I'll finish there. and just want to thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.